And Lord, above all today, we desire to glorify your name and to lift you up as you deserve honor and glory and praise that we desire as we look at your word to be amazed at what you have done. It is truly amazing and that we may be impressed with it and that it might uh, be in the back of our thinking, in fact, in the forefront of our thinking as we face different issues, different troubles, suffering even, that we may remember that everything that you provided is secure and that you will accomplish all the things in the future that you've already revealed to us. So we praise you for these things, desire that our minds might be clear, that we might understand clearly what you've revealed. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we want to look at God's plan, God's sovereign plan, and I'd like to complete that very, very powerful passage, Romans 8, 28 through 30, and we'll also get into the next passage as well. Now, it's at this point in the book of Romans, he's talked about justification. He's talked about sanctification. And there's a huge debate within the broader Christianity, maybe not in the circles that most of you hang out with, but this big issue of whether or not you can lose all of this salvation that God has provided. In fact, in a lot of other areas, particularly, this is a big issue, for example, in Brazil. When I was there, I was surprised at how many people believe that you can lose your salvation. You can probably tell us yeah. more about that. It's a big thing. You can lose it, and if you lose it, you can gain it again. Yeah. yeah. Catholic. Right. Yeah, so that was one thing that kind of struck out. But that's true in other places as well. Uh, Ukraine, that's a big issue. In fact, a, a large percentage of the population believe that you can lose your salvation. If there were a place, a major place in Scripture, that you would expect Paul, for example, to teach that concept, it would be at this point in the book of Romans. After he's laid out doctrine of salvation or justification is the way that he describes it. And then he talks about sanctification. It's in the process of sanctification where we live. It's that process where God is conforming us to his image, where we are growing in righteousness, justification. We are declared righteous, not made. In fact, sanctification is the process of us becoming more and more righteous. We never reach that ultimate sanctification. And in the passage we're talking about, he's talking about glorification, that next phase that we don't experience until we go to be with the Lord. But if there were a point at which Paul would say, but if you don't live righteously, if you don't continue to walk in the Lord, if you don't continue in faith, if in fact you abandon Christianity, if this and that, if that or this or problems, if this arises, you may lose it all. You have the capability of perhaps abandoning Christ and therefore losing everything that God has provided. If that were true, if that were the teaching, this is where you would find it. And instead, the conclusion of the book of Romans is almost running it into the ground, the idea if God is for us, who can be against us? And hopefully we'll get to that little passage here. 
And if that's not enough, the passage that we're looking at, verses 28 through 30, give us this unbreakable package that ends in glorification. And it's like a chain. In fact, we'll get to it in a moment here. I'm using the illustration of a chain that God has, in fact, effected. And this is from God's perspective. In other words, God's plan or God's work beginning in eternity past. And he's going to carry it all the way into the completion of it, which we call glorification in uh, eternity future. And it's a package. It's like a chain that you can't break. And the only one that potentially could break it would be God himself. That's kind of the point of 31 through the end of the chapter. It's not a matter of positive and negative brownie. No, it's all grace. It's all what God has done. He doesn't talk about faith. He doesn't talk about man's part in it. And he's already talked about that in some detail. He's already told us that justification is by faith and faith alone. In fact, we've been seeing if we try to live the Christian life, even trying to live is wretched man that I am. In other words, I can't do it. Even living the Christian life is by faith as well. So we're looking at this plan and we've been going over it and I'm not going to re-emphasize everything again. We'll just complete it and then move on to verse 31. Now, he doesn't mention election, but in the total package, other places, I kind of explained the doctrine of election. He does mention foreknowledge in this passage, and we defined it. And I inclined to see more than just seeing something ahead of time. That's the basic meaning. When it deals with humans, we expect the sun to rise tomorrow, and we make plans, and we uh, have uh, kind of a preview, perhaps, of what's going to happen. We have a schedule. We have a little bit of knowledge ahead of time because we have that schedule. Well, when it comes to God, I think it's a little bit more than just knowing. Certainly, he is omniscient, but I think there's more there. And it may include, in fact, some theologians include election. And predestination, we talked about that, and we ended last time with calling, and that's where we pick up. But before we get there, let me give you an overview. Part of calling, he doesn't mention it here, he just mentions the broad aspect of God drawing us to himself. But I think part of what's involved in that, he convicts us of our sin, makes us aware that we are separated and lost, and he gives us the insight or illumination that the only solution to our condition is Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. So the cross is essential. I call that illumination. And then once we understand that, then we have, that's when we come in. But uh, he doesn't mention the part of the believer. He goes on to justification. And we won't spend too much time on that because we've already looked at it from chapter 3, verse 21 to the end of chapter 5. But this is all what God has done. Beginning in eternity past, in time, he draws the individual by calling, and he gives, I believe, a general call. Many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew 22. So, I think every individual has opportunity, so there's no inequity here or injustice. We talked about that a little bit. And then after justification... 
He even looks at the future and he puts it, one of the things I'm going to mention, in the past tense, as if it's already completed. This is the package. And it's like an unbreakable chain that starts in eternity past and ends in the future when we go to be with the Lord and continues on into eternity. So that's kind of the broad scope. We've already looked at 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. So he is sovereign over all things. We stress that. Looked at lots of passages. To those who are who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, he has a plan, a purpose. And in verse 29 and 30, he expands that plan in relationship to mankind. I just gave you a summary of that purpose. And we're looking at suffering in sanctification. This is the context. Context is everyday living. And when you understand what things beyond this life, when we understand what God has planned, that gives us insight into how to respond to present difficulties in suffering. So it gives us that future hope. 18 through 25, that includes the entire universe, all of mankind. He talks about the present support of the Holy Spirit. And we stressed that in this passage, he's dealing only with believers. He's not talking about the unbeliever. He's already dealt with that in the early chapters. So we have support from the Holy Spirit to deal with any circumstance, particularly suffering. And then we're looking at this sovereign plan. And it's a context of sanctification. There's a promise of the plan. There's progress of the plan. And basically, we're in verse 30, the performing of that plan or the executing of it. I use P to alliterate there. Promise, progress, performance. 29, for those whom he foreknew. We talked about that. This is the beginning of the chain. God foreknowing in eternity past. All circumstances, he knows everything, everything about us, everything about the universe that he's created, everything about anything. He also predestined, and that's the next link in the chain, to be conformed. We spent time looking at what he predestined us. It's not simply salvation. He predestined all of the circumstances relating to the Christian life. It's in the context of sanctification, and he already has orchestrated certain things to take place that conform us to his image. Become conformed to the image of his son so that, it includes the son, so that he, the son, would be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, ultimately, this is part of the glorification of Jesus Christ. And then verse 30 picks up the chain, these whom he predestined, Now he's entering into time. Everything before that is in eternity past, and now he also called. So the next link in the chain here, after foreknowledge and predestination, is calling. You got that? And I've tried to summarize some of that, and I begin with the context of depravity. You have to have this background, this understanding. Paul doesn't introduce it because he spent part a large chunk of the book of Romans, trying to convince the reader that there's nothing that mankind can do to get out of his sin. There's nothing that man can do to change his lost condition. 
And that lost condition, I've showed you slides that indicate that, well, scriptures on a slide, <laughs> that indicate that our minds are affected, our minds, our thinking is twisted. We don't have a biblical perspective. So our minds are affected, our emotions are affected. Every aspect of who we are is affected. I began with depravity because you have to understand the condition of mankind to put that in perspective to realize these other doctrines, these other concepts that are hard to understand for virtually every believer. And if Bill were here, he would emphasize the ways of God we don't totally understand. We have to accept what he says. And what I'm sharing is what this passage teaches, which goes against some of our thinking in terms of fellow human beings. So you have to start with depravity, all are condemned. And then, not in this passage, but we talked about the concept of election, God choosing some And here's where we have a problem, because it seems like, well, is God playing favorites? Is God, in other words, how do we explain election, especially in light of Ephesians 1, 4, where it talks about God choosing before the foundations of the earth? Then when we get to chapter 9, we ever get there? Connie's skeptical. Chapter 9, where it talks about God basically choosing Jacob over Esau. Isn't that unfair to Esau, what's going on? And there's other passages that seem to indicate that God chooses some. Many are called, but few are chosen, the passage we talked about. Well, what's going on? Well, you have to keep it in mind. Had God not chosen some, what would be the outcome? What would be fair? What would be just? All would be dead. All would deserve death. All would be condemned. None would be saved. God intervenes and takes the initiative to make sure that some do not experience condemnation. And that's how I explain and try to put the two together here. So there's no unfairness. God is perfectly just. That's very clear in Scripture. God is perfectly wise. His plan is wise. His plan is loving. He's not obligated to love all, even though he does, but not to the extent of justification. There's a general, what's it called, uh, common grace is the word theologians use. But he has chosen some, and he passed over others. That doesn't mean they don't have opportunity, but depravity is such, is that if God does not intervene, Romans has already told us there's none that seeks after God. So he allows depravity to run its course. And then he continues to work in the believer for knowing, not, I said, I made the point, not knowing those who would choose him and then choosing and then electing. I think election comes first. And then in this context, God knowing all of the circumstances, knowing all of the options, knowing every choice, Every motive, and knowing that all of those choices and motives are rejecting of him, he chooses some, and not only that, but he predestines some, and he seeks a plan, or he effects a plan, where he orchestrates events for the outcome, 
orchestrating outcomes for the elect. Making sure that you hear the gospel, making sure you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, making sure that your mind is illumined, making sure that you come to a point to realize that the only hope is in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Make sense? And then we have calling in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, those he also called. So we have God's work of God intervening in time. Everything before that, for knowledge, and if you include election in this, not in this passage, but in the broader scope, and if you include predestination, I think all of that is that plan that starts in eternity past. And then now in the experience of each individual, You could include Old Testament believers. You could include New Testament believers. You could include first century believers, believers in our time. In our circumstance, God calls. This is individual and personal. (laughs) Connie. Oh, okay. I see. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. I need need correcting. You're, You're the backup. Corrector. We all know who the primary corrector is. Wasn't sure you were going to be here, Maddie. That's right. You trained her well, Maddie. So intervening in time. Now you don't see this unless you're a believer and you can kind of discern and see God working in an individual. But you probably were not aware God had already begun this process, as I reflect back on my life, I can see where God used lots of circumstances to bring me to an understanding and to bring me to a point of realizing that I needed Jesus Christ. That's calling. <laughs> and God uses many things. He can. He begins with general revelation. We talked a little bit about that. That's Romans 1. He didn't introduce it here because he's already covered Romans 1. That God has designed the entire universe to reveal himself and that there's none who have an excuse, basically. They are without excuse. Because God has revealed himself to every human being that has ever lived. And all you have to do is look at the creation and you have to come to the conclusion it just cannot come about by natural means. There has to be a God behind it. Those that respond positively, I think that's part of the call. No matter where they exist, and a lot of stories of missionaries are those that are aware that the animism that they were raised with, or the atheism, or whatever the case may be, or the false religion that they were raised in, there's just something wrong with it, and they have a sense that the God of creation is bigger, is greater, and I believe Those, some of those are called. In fact, some of those are elect. Some of those are chosen. God makes sure that they get further revelation. That's the gospel itself. It also says, you will find. Yes. Yep. Conviction of sin. Part of the calling process where God makes a person aware that they are depraved, that they are lost, that they're separated, that their own way doesn't work. Their own devices, their own efforts to try to please God does not work. In fact, God is not pleased like filthy rags. 
And once a person is convicted, there's only one hope. There's only Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12. No other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. It's only through what Christ has done. That understanding, now you're in a position to be able to make a decision. And God does all of this without violating human volition. That's the hard part. That's where it's hard to put the two together. I believe God has a plan. God affects this plan without violating human volition. And it's at this point that the person, if he's convinced, and I think if God has already done all that work ahead of time of calling and convicting and everything else, and electing in eternity past, the next stage is justification. In other words, or belief and receiving justification. And those whom he called, he also justified. See the chain? Chain continues. So it's an unbreakable chain. To those whom, did you notice in the chain? Four times in each of the stages. Four times Kind of these are the links, if you will. Not only that, he also. So one group, those that are foreknown, includes also this other group. He also predestined. So 100% of those in the first group are included 100% in the next group. And we have this chain four times. So the foreknown are also predestined. They're also called, and now at this stage, they're also justified, and then we'll see that the justified are also glorified. So none in each of the class is lost in the chain. Can't lose your salvation, basically. Each is linked to the previous. It's like a chain. That's where we get the idea. And number five here, this is all a sovereign work of God. This is what is mentioned in verse 28, this plan that God effected in eternity past. So calling includes this, includes conviction, includes illumination, and that leads to justification. And we don't have to spend a lot of time on that. Just a quick review. Justification includes two elements. Everybody remember those? Number one. It was so many years ago, we got to go back to chapter 3. A legal declaration. Everybody got that? It's a courtroom word. And what is declared? Not Not innocence. Not guilty. guilty. Because the penalty was paid. Yeah. Yeah, not innocence. But justified or acquitted. We use the word acquitted in the courtroom today. The same idea, justified. In other words, yes, you're treated as if you are Jesus Christ, who is innocent. You're declared righteous. It's a legal term. But there's a second aspect. Not just this declaration. We're not made righteous. Still have a tendency to sin, capability. In fact, to do even worse things than we did before we trusted. We're made righteous. No. That's later. Sanctification is the process of growing to be more conformed to the image of Christ. Justification doesn't make us righteous. It declares us righteous. And from God's perspective, we're viewed as holy as Jesus Christ. Positionally, exactly. What's the second aspect? Declared righteous. 
No, there's there's a positive. That's the positive. We missed we missed the negative. A removal of sin, forgiveness of sin, everything forgiven, past, present, future, and we stand declared righteous. Two aspects: forgiveness of sin and the declaring of righteousness, justification. So justification, declaring righteous, and like I said, we dealt with that chapter three, twenty-one through five. 21, the end of the chapter. And those whom he justified, part of the chain, these he also glorified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay? See the chain? Starting verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, notice the same language, he also predestined. Skip to verse 30. These whom he predestined, see the chain here, he also called. These whom he called, see the similarity there? He also justified, and now the last link here. These whom he justified, he also glorified. See the chain? Now the glorification is future. It is future, but Paul Exactly. We'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah, you're always a step ahead of me. They are all, every single one of them, all four of them are in what's called the aorist tense. You want to explain to everybody what the aorist tense is all about? You know what I got? I am. Um, because you'll be too technical and I, too academic, no, right? No, I, <laughs> sometimes, well. Completed, I, that, very good, I completed action. Completed action is actually, get it? Aspect, yeah. yeah. Probably the simplest way to view the Aorist, in contrast to another past tense called imperfect. Imperfect can be extended past time or ongoing past time. It's not definite like the aorist. The aorist is a definite past time and most often has the idea of something that is completed, something that is done, completed. You like that? Glorify those whom he glorified, even though it's in the future, it's put in the aorist tense. Because I think what Paul is giving us here, it's as sure as if it has already been done and completed. In other words, it's secure, essentially. Every single one of them, including this that we have not experienced yet. From our perspective of time, it's still future. But Paul puts it in the past tense. Now, some theologians describe this kind of an aorist as, what's the word that they use? I can't remember. It's kind of the uh, prophetic aorist, or they use some word to indicate that some future events, and by the way, there's some prophecies, other Bible prophecies, that have not been fulfilled. Some of them are placed in the past tense as well, even in the Old Testament. So what we have here is an unbreakable chain from eternity to eternity that is the work of God. It's not talking about our part. He's already talked about that when he talked about justification. Justification is by faith and faith alone, apart from anything we can do. And that's the same with sanctification. So in this context, he's looking at the end product of sanctification. So justification leads to glorification, which is, from our perspective, future, from the text, aorist tense, past tense. Because the things that God has planned are sure. 
There's no ambiguity. There's no contingency. There's no plan B. There's no plan B in God's plan. We talked about that. So that's the chain. Let's look at a few verses here. This is not just Romans. Somebody look up 2 Corinthians 3.18. Somebody else, Colossians. Who wants to do these? Connie's got 2 Corinthians. Who wants to do... Terry's got Colossians. And 1 John 3.5. You got that, Dwayne? And by the way, you can include Philippians 1.6. The good work that Christ began. What is he going to do? He's going to complete it. He's going to complete it. There's no insecurity in these passages. No losing of anyone. Those whom he foreknew, none of them are lost all the way into the future. Those he also glorified. Who's got Second Corinthians? You got that one, Connie? 3.18. This is the process, by the way, of glorification. Okay, that's the process that we are going through now. Conforming to the image or the glory, you might even say, of Jesus Christ. And we show little glimpses of it. When we reflect Jesus Christ and his nature, people see a little bit of that glory. We experience a little bit of that. And it's a transforming process that won't be completed until glorification and then Colossians kind of gives us a future hope in that. You got that one, Terry? Colossians 3.10. On the new self is being renewed in knowledge of its creator. Okay, being renewed. More of the process. And then 1 John 3.2 is the end of the process. You got it? Be in love with now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed, but we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, but we shall see him as he is. Okay. Right now, we can't see the end product, is basically what he's saying. But when he is revealed, in other words, the revelation of who we truly are in Christ Jesus. We still have the sin nature, and that kind of blurs everybody's vision. But the reality of that, that'll be revealed. That'll be made known. And when does that take place? He tells us in that verse. When Jesus is revealed, what is he referring to then? Second coming. When Christ returns, every eye shall see him. He will be fully revealed in all of his resurrection glory. And when he is revealed, that's the point at which we will be revealed. And also the completion, the transformation, the end product. We shall be like him in resurrection bodies as well. That's glorification. Got it? There's other verses as well. And like I said at the beginning in the introduction, if there were any place in Scripture that you would expect, Paul says, okay, this is all true, but you can sin enough now that you can fall away, you can lose your salvation. If that doctrine were a true doctrine, even though there are some verses that are interpreted in that way, and I think misinterpreted, but if that were true, you would expect it right here in the book of Romans in verse 31, particularly, if not even sooner than that. Everything that we've seen so far has given us assurance of God's plan where he will, in fact, effect it and complete it. But 
There might be some that have, well, what about this? What about that? What about this circumstance? What if I am not faithful in suffering? What if Satan crops up? What if, what if all, what are all these ifs? Well, verse 31 to the end of the chapter, he's going to give security. And remember the context is sanctification, but you can apply it in the broader scope. He's talking about the broad scope of salvation in general as well, or justification in the book of Romans. Remember, he's talking about sanctification, but if you can't lose your sanctification, then obviously you're not losing your uh, salvation either. So verses 31 through 39, the end of the chapter, we have the security of sanctification, and he's going to give a series of questions. Most of them are rhetorical. In other words, he's not asking for an answer, but... He gives an implied answer. Pardon me? Most of the answers in this context are no. 31 through 35. And so he's got 31 through 35, the questions. And I believe he's going to give the answers or some more extended answers, 36 and 39. Or the emphasis is answering all of these questions. Even though he's going to answer the questions as he goes as well. In verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? What's he talking about? What things is he referring to? Salvation. But also, uh, you know, God's sovereignty. You know, the the sovereign plan that he's just discussed. The sovereign plan that he's just discussed. I think that's in view. But because this is starting to move into a new section, I think he's going to transition here. So I think in general, it's a general question that deals with the last three verses that we've been spending the last three weeks in. You might even say all of chapter 8. You might even say all of sanctification. What else might you say concerning all that he's said before? Because they all go together. I mean, he's just given us this chain that links everything together. Probably everything he's talked about in the book of Romans is in view here. What do we conclude? What can we say? How do we evaluate everything that Paul has said up to this point? Well, he's going to basically going to answer this question that you are perfectly secure. Can you lose your salvation? Absolutely not. Terry. Losing your salvation is one aspect of lose your sanctity. Or we know that you can't lose your justice. Now, that's the main issue that's debated, though. Right. Can you lose your sanctification? In this context, that's what he's asking, basically. Yes. You can or you can't? No. uh, He's going to be emphatically saying no. Nothing. about the backslidden Christian? You're growing, but it's way back. Yeah. Right. Glorification is sure. So. In other words, he will get you there, even though you die in a backslidden condition. Right. And that's the point that those that hold to this idea of losing your salvation say, well, if you die in that condition, you've lost it. But Paul is saying glorification, it's a completed deal. From God's perspective, outside of time, it's as good as done in terms of you and I inside of time. Because there's also the concept that's popular out there of perseverance. Yes. That you can't, almost wouldn't back Right. And that, I don't. Right. By that as well. Okay. So this is kind of a general question. What then shall we say to these things? And he's going to ask a second question that actually answers it. That's why these are rhetorical. 
if God is for us, who is against us? So you can come up with any scenario in your thinking and you can answer it. Well, is God greater than that? Yes. Is If he's for us, then obviously there's nothing that's going to intervene that's going to cause us to be insecure in our sanctification and or glorification. What do you suppose is the kind of conditional clause that we have here? If God is for us, what do you expect, Connie? Hmm? And what kind of conditional clause is that? Do we have to ask Maddie or do you think you can you can you come up with it? Maddie's guessing first conditional. It was a long time ago. Yeah. Remember, there are at least four different kinds of conditional clauses in the Greek language. First condition assumes the premise to be true. And as Connie is saying, you could even translate the if there in a more positive way. You could say, since God is for us. In other words, the question or the condition assumes the truth of the statement. Or you could say, if God is for us, and he is. And he is, yes. Right. Exactly. That's the idea of a first conditional clause, and that's what we have here. So we're assuming God is for us, and if that is the case, who can be against us? Can you come up with any scenario that could in any way disrupt? And if that's not clear enough, he's going to go through a series of things as he goes through all of these questions And basically the answer is none of these things. So if you can even go to the extreme, what about Satan? Isn't he so powerful? He's more powerful than any human being. Is there anything that he can do? Now, he's going to answer that in some of the following statements and questions that he brings. But this is crucial. This is fundamental. This is basic. In fact, this kind of trumps everything, if I can use a contemporary word here. Trumps all. If God is for us, then nothing can stand in the way. And since God is for us, then we can conclude there's nothing that can derail the whole process, the whole plan of God. And in the context is this plan of God that ultimately ends in eternal life with the Lord in glorified bodies. That's glorification. Second question. Well, the second question gives the answer. God is for us. So God is for us. That's the answer to the first question. What do we say to these things? God is for us. And as a result, uh, you can't think of any unbeliever that can trip you up. You can't think of any demon that might uh, put an obstacle and tempt you in a point that uh, you do this horrendous thing. Or even Satan himself. Greater is he who is in us than he who, what, is in the world. That's a passage that refers to whom? Satan himself. God is for us. Who can mess us up? Basically, no one. Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. We don't have time to get into the details here. But he's going to review some of what he's already talked about. He's talked about Christ dying. And he's using interesting language here. Uh, next time I'll kind of explain a little bit more detail. The He did not spare his own son. 
Well, that probably goes back to Genesis 22 when it speaks of Abraham did not spare his only son and God provided a substitute. Well, God didn't spare his son, but made his son the substitute. So I think there's an allusion perhaps to Genesis 22. He did not spare his own son. So we have another question, question number three. The sparing of the son is an allusion probably to what Abraham did. But he delivered him over for us all. He was the ultimate substitute. This is crucifixion. This is death. God didn't spare him like God spared Isaac when Abraham offered him. Instead, he actually, in his predestination, remember we looked at a verse that spoke of the crucifixion as a series of events that was predetermined, predestined. He delivered him over for us all. If you read the context of Christ being arrested, what did Judas do? Judas delivered him up to the authorities using the same word. In fact, it's used like seven times in the context where he was delivered up. But behind it all is this plan. Remember, we looked at Acts 2.23 as well. The whole crucifixion was designed in eternity past, not relieving anyone of the responsibility, but God in his plan worked out circumstances such that Christ died on the cross. God delivered him over for us all. And if God did all of this, how will he how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Let's take a closer look at that. And the important phrase there, giving us all things. In this context, is he going to complete the sanctifying process? Is he going to glorify? Yes. And more. He's going to give us all things. Look at that and talk about what that is related to. So if God has given the most precious that, the Father has given that's, the most precious thing and not withheld it, then why would he anything, anything else? That's the argument. From the greater to the lesser. If he's given his only son the ultimate, is he going to withhold justification? Can you sin enough that God's now going to withhold it? Can you lose it? God's going to give you the lesser. He didn't spare his own son. Let's stop at that point and... Look to next week. If God is for us, nothing else really matters. He wants to close for us. Maddie, since you're with us, you want to close for us. So, so for your for your lavish, and thank you for the assurance that you will care that you and um, let us day by day in that. Amen. See you next week.